Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll look at the nation's statutory debt limit. What is it? Why doesn't it work to control the growing debt? And are there viable alternatives? To get answers and perspectives, we'll talk to Susan Irving of the Government Accountability Office, better known as GAO. Sue is senior advisor to the Controller General of the United States. She specializes in federal debt and fiscal issues, and she oversees GAO's annual report on the nation's fiscal health. Joining me in the conversation today is Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman. Sue and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Nice to be here. Well, uh, Sue Irving joined the GAO in the fall of uh, 1989 after a career that included work in the uh, U.S. Senate, the Council of Economic Advisors, and teaching at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. She led the GAO's work on the federal budget, user fees, and debt management from 1992 to late 2017, when she became senior advisor to the Controller General. She has a PhD in public policy from Harvard, an M, uh, MPP from the Kennedy School, and an MAP from, MAT, excuse me, from Harvard's Graduate School of Education, and a bachelor's degree in U.S. studies from Wellesley uh, College. And uh, Sue, the debt limit has been a, a vexing subject for policymakers on Capitol Hill and a source of confusion for the public. But fortunately, uh, one authority in Washington has been crystal clear on the subject. For many years now, the GAO has been studying the debt limit and in a series of detailed reports. It's uh, it has warned uh, that as currently structured, the debt limit is deeply flawed and carries significant risks. And uh, Sue, you've been intimately involved in uh, GAO's efforts in, in this regard. So let's just begin with some <clears throat> general background information about the debt limit. Um, you know, what is it? <laughs> how, how does it work? What's so interesting, I think, a little bit of history is important here. The Constitution gives to the Congress the exclusive authority to borrow on behalf of the federal government. That is, if you're going to borrow back by the full faith and credit of the United States government, Congress must authorize it. And up until 27th World War I, Congress literally approved each issuing of treasury securities or each clump. World War I comes and it's a little overwhelming because we have to borrow to fund the war. So in 2017, Congress and, and the president enacted something called the debt limit or the debt ceiling in order to make it easier for the treasury to borrow the funds necessary 
to implement the laws passed by the Congress. For instance, if our revenue, if, if the laws about taxing and fees result in revenue that is less than the spending dictated by laws about spending, then we borrow to fill that gap. So the debt limit was sort of to say to Treasury, go ahead and borrow to fill that gap. And, you know, and they set a limit. They said, borrow up to a certain amount and then come back and talk to us. So it was designed, and up until around 2011, it was often a, a, a time for focus on our debt or talking about it. But, and sometimes it was held hostage for some other provisions, but fundamentally it was, you know, it would be raised as necessary. There were some close calls, but it still happened. Suddenly in 2011, there becomes a question about it. And we'll get to that later. But right now what I wanna say is that what's really important to get target your answer is the debt limit is a limit on the authority of the treasury to borrow to fill the gap between spending and revenues enacted in law. It is in no way a limit on the amount of spending or the gap between spending and revenues does not limit debt. It limits the ability to pay the bills. So that's an interesting summary, Sue, because it, what you're saying, I just want to recap, is that the debt limit was passed uh, in order to make it, it easier to manage our finances. It wasn't, the debt limit was not instituted as a way to serve as a check on our debt, correct? That's correct. And it is not a check on debt. <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's an interesting point, too. I mean, a, a very fundamental point, because, you know, we do, as you know, a lot of grassroots work uh, around the country. And, you know, most people think that the debt limit is something that's designed to uh, control U.S. fiscal policy somehow and wonder why the debt limit isn't doing that, why we have so much debt. But you make the in, in GAO and its reports is quite clear to, to make this point that it's not the debt limit doesn't do anything to control the policies that are producing the debt. It's 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 a, I believe you called it as a as a backward looking mechanism. That's right. It's it's people sometimes think it's a credit limit, but it's not a credit limit. It, it, it's imagine the imagine the Congress with laws and signed by the president says to the agencies, you do this and here's the amount of money and you must, this is what you are supposed to spend and they're supposed to do this with it. And then they enact laws to raise revenue to cover part of that spending. The result is debt. It is illegal for the agencies to refuse to spend that money. So the debt is created by the spending and revenue laws duly enacted by Congress and the president over time. If you wait until the agencies have, as instructed, spent the money, everybody knows that then you have to pay the bills. And all the debt limit does is say to Treasury, nah, you can't borrow to pay those bills. Too bad. And that's not what they had in mind or what we should have in mind. So what's... Oh, what, oh, oh, go ahead, Tori. Oh, I was going to ask, so what's... Uh, debt limit is in the news these days. What, what's happening with the debt limit in the next month or two? Well, one of the things taken now is rather than raise the debt limit to a specific dollar amount, which is hard to predict, uh, what Congress has done lately and what they did last time was they suspend the debt limit to a certain date. What that means is that Treasury is allowed to borrow the funds necessary to operate the government until that date. 
on August 1st, we will immediately hit the new debt limit, which will be the amount of debt subject to limit outstanding. At that point, it's important to realize that um, the debt limit includes both debt owed to the public, that is if your pension fund holds treasuries, but also for instance, the social security trust fund holds treasury securities, the highway trust fund holds treasury securities, the civil service retirement fund holds treasury securities. Part of my pension in the G fund is in such treasury securities. So what, what, what treasury must do at that point is engage in legal, um, what are called extraordinary measures, extraordinary actions. And with that combination, it frees up some room for them to operate. But it gets to be nervous because that only frees up so much room. So what I hear you saying is that the, the debt limit's gonna reinstate in August. Uh, we will have hit the debt limit. And in order to avoid breaching that debt limit and defaulting on our, our interest payments and debt, the treasury department has got to conduct these extraordinary measures to sort of move things around to create more cash to fund, fund our liabilities until we figure out what we're doing, until Congress figures out what they're doing on raising the statutory debt limit or suspending the statutory debt limit, right? And it makes people in the, what happens is the treasuries, I think it's important to understand that treasury securities are the, well, I like to say the safest security in the world. I can't prove that. So what I say is they're considered the safest security in the world. Um, they, they are treated almost like cash. I mean, they are exchangeable. They can be reinvested. They can, you know, whenever there's a crisis, there's what's called a flight to quality. And you see, and other countries hold much of their reserves in treasuries. They may hold it in other currencies to, for trade, but in terms of safe reserves, people hold treasuries. Um, a former CBO director once referred to treasuries as the underpinning of the entire world financial system. It's, it's, so people get a little nervous if they're, now the extraordinary actions do provide some room you have to figure out just how much room and it makes for some uncertainty. So it creates some nervousness in the treasury market. It creates a whole huge bookkeeping and management burden for the people who borrow on our behalf, but yeah. These uh, extraordinary measures that uh, the treasury will begin to take on August 1st um, to keep sort of treading water, I guess, at the at the debt limit. Um, you mentioned that they're legal, they're um, but but they have a limit. I mean, there's there's only so long that they can do that. They can't do that inevitably. Uh, I mean, for forever. Is there some uh, general estimate about how long they can postpone running into a crisis? Well, we don't do that kind of cash flow estimate because what you're what the way to do it would be to literally look at okay, here's the spending going out. Medicare payments go out of this date. Social Security payments go out this date. We expect these bills. So it's hard enough in regular times. During the pandemic, it's really quite difficult because it, the timing of when outlays, that is when money actually leaves the treasury, is hard to predict. The group that does do, the Bipartisan Policy Center does do an estimate of what's called the X date. And they said it's really hard to predict that, you know, and everybody is saying it could be as early as early fall. You just don't know. It'll depend on how spending flows 
and when tax receipts come in and how big. Mm -hmm. Well, with that uh, note of suspense, um, we'll take our first break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Susan Irving, Senior Advisor to the Controller General of the United States at the Government Accountability Office. We're talking about the GAO's analysis of the federal debt limit, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are discussing the federal debt limit with Susan Irving, Senior Advisor to the Controller General of the United States at the Government Accountability Office, better known as GAO. Um, Tori, uh, you wanted to pick up on um, these, these extraordinary sure. measures that uh, sure. Treasury can take. Sure. Just to recap, you know, we know that the debt limit, we're going to hit the debt limit soon. And we know that Treasury has the authority to conduct these extraordinary measures to give it a little bit of running room before it really absolutely must, Congress must do something about either suspending or raising the debt limit. Um, but we don't know how long Treasury has to, to, to play around with these extraordinary measures. And one of the things that's making it really complicated this year a couple of things, and I do want to get your input on this. Number one is on the revenue side. You know, the economy is starting to come out of the COVID recession, but we don't know exactly quite how quickly. You know, data is always really noisy around a turning point, so it's really hard to predict revenues. A lot of the COVID relief bills that we've passed have given people temporary tax breaks. So that makes it a little harder to forecast revenues. But then on the spending side, you know, a lot of the COVID relief that we passed this year, direct payments to individuals, those spend out a lot faster, for example, than say some of the education money that was in uh, the COVID relief bills, that's gonna spend out over a couple of years. But the direct payments, uh, like the economic stimulus payments to individuals, you know, that's money that gets spent you know, right now. Um, we've got unemployment insurance, uh, uh, extra benefits that are expiring, but we also know that Treasury is getting ready to issue child tax credit payments to families that qualify. So you, you tie this all up in a bow and it makes it really hard to predict that X date, right? You've got really smart people at GAO, we've got really smart people at Treasury, but it still makes this really, really hard, right? Well, you know, you I should be worried about you taking my job. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd add, change in that is, you know, we don't actually do the prediction of the X state. We never have, and I'm not about to get into that business. But if, even not doing that, we can confirm that it is especially uncertain. I mean, it's always a little bit uncertain, right? You know, because there can always be something. And certainly if you think about back in the, um, quote, global war on terror, spend out rate was sometimes a little unusual, uh, erratic. But here, what you have is, yes, you said exactly right. Some programs, when I say spend out rate, it sounds all geeky, but it literally means how fast does the money leave the treasury? When does treasury actually have to pay a bill? And the answer, you know, in in salaries, in in benefits, it tends to be relatively rapidly. I mean, if if you know if you're getting a stimulus payment and you you've lost your job, you're going to buy food. You know, if you have to, you're going to buy. Um, diapers if you have a baby. I mean, you're going to, there are things, you're not, gonna, I know there's a lot of evidence that people, some people are saving it, but there are things you're going to have to buy. And that money goes, and first of all, the check goes to you right away. So it's left the treasury when it goes. Um, and we don't know about revenues. I mean, for instance, there are people who look at the monthly treasury statement 
to see what sort of get themselves an idea. For instance, revenues in April were lower and higher in July were higher. Well, if you move the due date for taxes from April 15th to July 15th, guess what? Some people wait away till them to pay their taxes. Not me, I'm married to someone who's not anyway. Um, and um, similarly, for instance, what's gonna happen between now and September? Because in mid-September, self-employed individuals and, and partnerships put pay estimated taxes. So those will come in September 15th. But what happens between August 1st and September 15th? You know, I mean, how fast, you know, what's, what's enacted? And, and I haven't looked at sort of how fast the things like the child tax credits, the advance payments are gonna go out. That's sort of, I'm not, I'm not expert enough. I don't wanna, we have POJO expert enough to look at that. I'm not one of them. Well, it's uncharted territory. I mean, exactly. a lot of it is uncharted territory. And we're running a very high deficit. We're lucky that the interest rates are incredibly low right now. So interest payments today are a lower share of GDP than, than before. Um, but, but the fact remains that we are still running, there is still a very large gap between spending and revenues, which means that the treasury must borrow money to meet the commitments the federal government has made. And that uh, leads me to the, you know, this thing that everybody's trying to avoid, which is, okay, we've hit the debt limit, Treasury has done as much as they can do to try to keep, keep things afloat, all trying to avoid a default. So, I mean, ultimately, what, what is- You said the D word. What is the ultimate disaster that we're trying to avoid? I, I mean, I, at one point I had in my, file a bunch of sort of quotes from, you know, from President Reagan, from, you know, from presidents back to, you know, whatever, of both parties talking about with letters to Congress saying, you've got to act, you've got to act, don't do this. Um, at a hearing a few years ago, I have to say a side note here, one of the issues about that working from home is I'm never, you know, time becomes sort of compressed, but um, uh, Senator Tester asked um, uh, Chairman Powell, um, what would happen? And Powell said, I, you know, Powell's never speechless, okay? Um, <laughs> he said, I, I, it would just, I can't even imagine. I mean, and that's that's what I said. I mean, the first I think would be shock, like, oh no, oh no, you're kidding, no. But literally, and nor is this like a, a oh, well, we'll get over it in a month. That's not true. Once you've done this kind of shock, once the, the, the strongest, most secure, most stable political economy in the world has said, nope, we're not making good on these, or oops, we're not making good on these. Your whole sense of the system is rattled. And I, I know this sounds really dramatic and emotional, but- it, It's irreparable. In very real ways, it is the financial underpinning uh, underpinning the entire world financial system. In a very real way, it would shock the financial system in a way much greater than what the pandemic has done. And if you think about what that's done to what the global recession did, and it's irreparable as Tori said, this is not one of those, oh yeah, we defaulted today. Now we'll go into, um, you know, whatever you do when you go into bankruptcy. No, that's not it. It's, you know, it's it's not it's not like a government shutdown, which is itself dysfunctional. But the government shuts down for a couple of days and certain things happen and everybody 
it's it's not a but, but this has these these has these long lasting consequences and it doesn't shut down the government what people need to realize is assuming you have an appropriation that is we all right now are operating still on our fy21 appropriations right um we are required to keep going it does not shut down the government the government continues to incur um to make obligations and to incur requirements that it pay. Um, you could go to court and probably win a case that the government owed you money, but if they cannot borrow to give you that money, mm -hmm. what have you got? And that, and that was the, the, one of the distinction I was making there is that the, they're, the, the two things are not um, a comparable. A, uh, a government shutdown is a dis political dysfunction uh, the if we actually get to a default, that has serious long-term economic consequences uh, because the treasury securities are considered, uh, you know, the, the safest investment in the world, right. and so you you'd be talking that all sorts of ripple repercussions. Well, just if suddenly treasuries uh, can't be relied on. The wealth destruction alone, I think, would be phenomenal. It would make the, the Great Recession, you know, back in the, the, the oh, 2009 look like a, a walk in the park. And and when I and when I say wealth destruction, I don't mean wealthy people are suddenly going to be, become poor. I mean, it's 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 everybody's wealth. If you recall back in the, the Great Recession, we were within days of people not being able to go to the ATM machine, put in their debit card and get cash out. This is what we're talking about in terms of, of wealth destruction, right? It's it's not just the start market and the value of, of treasury securities and interest rates and things like that. It's retirement assets that people have. It's cash that they hold in banks. It's, I mean, the, the, the wealth destruction would be enormous. And not just in this country. Correct. I mean, one of the things we know is the pandemic has, um, you know, the IMF and the World Health Organization are reporting on the sort of devastation to very poor countries and that it has it destroyed all the progress they made. This would hurt everybody. I mean, and, and, yes, you're right. Not just that, you know, we are not talking damage to the very wealthy. We are talking an entire system crashing. Um, and I mean, I, this sounds like I'm talking about the apocalypse, but in a very, in a very real well financial. And, and if you think about it, it, you know, in 2011, Standard & Poor's did a downgrade of US securities. They didn't do it because of our deficit. They did it because they said they heard elected people saying, eh, so if we missed it, what difference would it make? Now, I don't think those people were calling for a default. They were sort of calling for, eh, so there was a little lag. Well, and it, the other thing is, I mean, you know, again, if suppose you don't get the default, but as you get closer and closer to what people think the X date is, what you see is a dramatic increase in the cost of short-term bills. By increase, I mean like doubling daily kind of thing. Now, that's not a huge amount of money in the, you know, so 30, 50, 80, you know, it's not a big deal compared to the deficit we're running. But the very fact that that kind of, you saw people refusing to accept treasury securities as collateral without a haircut. One of the big investment companies refused to accept treasuries, um, you know, they started dumping treasuries. I mean, really? Treasuries? <laughs> Um, yeah, that's and, uh, and you can tell how strongly the agency feels in that, you know, we don't generally take we do not take policy positions at GAO. You know, we, for instance, 
but we do like we wouldn't take a position on which of exactly the various ways you could solve this problem all right we take a position about the long-term fiscal outlook and so when people say oh you don't care about the debt limit because you don't care oh no we were the first people to start complaining about the long-term fiscal outlook i've been doing that since 1992 obviously very effectively but um uh, <laughs> uh but but the way to deal with that is to start thinking about a fiscal plan and rules that help you as you make the decisions. If you want to use debt as a control, use it at the time you're creating debt. Or yes, it's it's that it is it it doesn't limit your debt. It limits your ability to pay your bills, and that's not what people want. You don't want it. It's it's not analogous at all to the credit limit. And what would happen if you go over it is not a one-time shock. It's it's if you imagine, you know, when people thought the world was flat and you could sail off it, it's it's sort of what would happen if that happened and you went off it. Talk about yeah. So, Sue, I'm curious, like, why why do you think we still have a debt limit? Um, well, a lot of people say just abolish it. And the problem is you have to replace it with something because of the Constitution. And, you know, there is the that the closest thing to abolition you could do would be to delegate authority to the Congress to borrow such sums as are necessary to fund the laws duly enacted by Congress and the president. It's sort of the approach the British use. But I think we probably, you know, people want to do something. It, it, I used to say it, it's a badly named law. You know, I mean, it, it sounds like it limits debt. And I think people would like to do something about our debt and about the future. But this is the wrong way. Um, on the on the subject of uh, default, I know a couple of years ago there were some ideas floating around, legislative ideas for, um, in effect, choosing which bills to pay because there's no mechanism for deciding if Treasury were to get into that position, which bills to pay and which bills not to pay. Um, I, I don't think it would really make any difference, would it? If, if even if Congress said, "Okay, suppose we default, and we're going to we're going to pay interest on the debt, and we're going to pay Social Security, but we're not going to pay these other things," it seems to me that if you were a creditor, you wouldn't be fooled by that. <laughs> well, first of all, it's, as the system is set up now, the only thing you could do separately is those treasuries that are purchased on Treasury Direct. There's a very small portion those go through a different payment system. So you could decide to pay those. Um, and, but basically when it, if you think about how payments go from, from the treasury, everything's, you know, computerized, right? So an agency, it is the programming agency's responsibility to determine whether the payment is proper or not. It then sends over, I forget the term, Tori, you would know it. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, warrants or whatever, to, it, a file goes to the treasury and the edit checks, the automatic checks in the payment system are things like, is the account number an existing account number? Is there a stop payment for the recipient? Literally a legally enact, you know, a prohibition. Um, and, and then the money goes. And treasury has always taken the position that it pays everything or it doesn't. Now, could you mechanically say to treasury, uh, pay all the bills that came in by noon. I mean, I guess you, if it's a law, uh, but, and I'm never going to say something's impossible because you can reprogram computer systems, but in the best sense of the word, the treasury system doesn't know what it's paying. 
Mm -hmm. It's not Treasury's job to decide whether it's a proper payment or not. It's the agency's job. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Sue Irving, Senior Advisor to the Controller General of the United States at the Government Accountability Office. We're talking about GAO's analysis of the federal debt limit, and uh, we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are discussing the federal debt limit with Susan Irving, Senior Advisor to the Controller General of the United States at the Government Accountability Office, better known as GAO. Uh, and uh, Tori, you want to pick up on that last subject we were talking about, uh, how would the government deal with a default and, and who gets paid? Yeah, so you were talking briefly about how in the past there's been legislation that would uh, prioritize uh, payments from the Treasury in the event that we breach the, the, the debt limit. And I have to wonder if that might cause some complications with the public when you, if, for example, we were to prioritize principal and interest on Treasury debt, um, you know, a third of our, our Treasury is Treasury debt is held by foreigners. Um, most notably Japan first and China second. So those payments would go abroad to those institutions and individuals. Um, and I have to wonder how, for example, uh, you know, physicians who provide uh, Medicare services to Medicare beneficiaries would feel and how social security beneficiaries would feel that you know that money is going to people who live in in Japan and China first before it's going to people here in the United States. I mean that seems to me to be you know that 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 that's a complication or a, a, that would be a problem I think with, with with voters here in the United States. What's interesting is I, I think we had already discussed that the way the system is programmed is that the payment all payments all direction all directives to the treasury to pay bills come in sort of computerized form from the approving department to the treasury and that it's the it's the programming agency's responsibility to be sure it's a proper payment so in the best sense of the word treasury doesn't know it just pays bills that mm -hmm. approved by the uh, if you were to go in and make changes now the law you're referring to actually what it did instead was it passed it was a law that exempted borrowing for the purposes of paying social security that is ah. it exempted from the debt limit the redemption of the social security trust fund in other words so that again social security if you imagine that you're the treasury and i'm social security agency and bob is a recipient i don't send him a treasury security instead i come visit you i mean not really but instead i send you an instruction to send him a check and you say yeah i'll hand over the security so i give you a security um, and and you redeem it for cash and pay Bob the cash, mm -hmm. but um, but those aren't quite equal. You have had to borrow some for the difference. So that's what they did. But when people talk about prioritization, it's varied over time. Sometimes they say you should pay the defense department. Sometimes they say um, sometimes the proposal is to pay principal and interest. And the argument for that would is the belief that maybe that would mean it wasn't really a default because you wouldn't have defaulted on your borrowing, on, on your, you know, on your bonds. and bills. Right, right. But you still will end up defaulting on your bills. 
that is your not your bills like treasury bills but the comp- your promise to pay individuals yeah, yeah. So, you know the people who you know the and, and i don't mean just the federal employees i mean the the um the contractor who built the um the road the, the contractor who built the ship for the defense mm-hmm. department mm-hmm. The, um you know the you know all the goes those, on <laughs> yeah it goes on and on and on will not have been paid and there's a question about whether that would mean, oh, it's not a real default. I mean, it will feel that way to them. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, I think if uh, somebody- And I'm not sure, you know, what it would feel like to the uh, financial markets, to the treasury market, and to the rating agencies and to other countries, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, you know, there might well be a feeling, okay, so they paid us first this time. You know, I don't think it solves the problem. I mean, right, right. Because, uh, well, I just. Don't, I mean, it, it, well, and I, I, as you say, I'll go out on a limb here, and I'll say that you know, prioritizing payments from the Treasury is not a way to get reelected if you're a member of Congress or the Senate. <laughs> well, I will leave defer. I will leave that entirely to you. <laughs> I mean, we work for the majority and the minority, and always have. Um, and as you know, we treat chairman and ranking members of committees equally um, in terms of priority, and always have. But we don't think this should be a partisan issue. I mean, we're very careful. And the Comptroller General is, if you know Gene Dodaro at all, he's very careful. He, he believes very strongly in, um, you know, objective, critical, deep analysis in disclosing any limitations to the analysis. And in, in the fact that, I, I would describe it as all power in this country derives from an election certificate. And we hold, hold authority and power, all of us derivatively. As the Congress has asked us to provide good neutral analysis, so we take, we might take position on whether our weapon system is working. We might, I mean, unlike the other support agencies, we will make a recommendation, but we won't make one on a policy issue. This is what I would just drive the line here for: is there are a number of ideas of different ways to think about how you control debt and different ways to delegate the authority to borrow. We won't take a position on which of those is the best for Congress. We, we will. We have done. We have described some, and we have, could go could go in quite detail about the, the how to implement them and the challenges. But the, we do not view saying that you should not endanger the full faith and credit of the United States as crossing that line. We feel very strongly about that. You've possibly noticed. Yeah, I have. Uh, <laughs> uh, and thank God somebody does. I mean, this is the, uh, the you know, I, the idea of even contemplating it uh, just uh, has always struck me as um, bizarre. And, and uh, you know, there's nothing fiscally responsible about it. I mean, people that are um, upset about the nation's long-term budget trajectory, uh, you know, as the Concord Coalition was formed to, to look at, and as GAO has been warning about since 92, the same year as our, uh, as we were founded, um, I've never been able to say, well, come on, I mean, uh, you know, if we just defaulted on the debt, that's the, that's the great, great solution. I, that, that it does, just doesn't uh, strike me as making a, a whole, uh, how that would make the situation better. Uh, I think it would make the situation considerably worse. But you mentioned that GAO has looked at some alternatives. Um, what are the, uh, I mean, I know that you did a big study about this a few years back, and um, I think I might have participated in some of the 
online stuff that uh, that you did. And uh, what were the, the just generally the, the GAO's conclusions about some potential alternatives to the uh, the current structure of the debt limit? One of the thank you. We we had sort of two conditions we wanted met. We wanted it to to tie the decision about the level of debt to the decisions that create debt. As we discussed earlier, it's now an after the fact. But if you're going to use debt as part of your control, if you're worried about the debt profile and the debt forecast, then think about what the impact for debt is at the time of the spending and revenues. And we also wanted it to be not just not disruptive of the treasury market. So one is if you um, imagined, okay, this may be hard to imagine, but if you imagined a return to a world where you had a budget resolution passed both houses, you will note that in each budget resolution, there's a statement about the level of debt. You could do um, link it to that. Remember at one point under um, both um, Gephardt and Haster um, at different times, there was a thing where the, in the house it automatically spun off a bill. The budget resolution doesn't have to be signed by the president, but that one does. It set the debt limit at the level in the budget resolution. The Senate, if the Senate then passed it, it went to the president. And so you were making both decisions. You know, you're setting your, if you think of the budget resolution as the fiscal statement of the Congress, both how, how, how much spending on what, how much revenues and how much debt, then it said, by the way, you're allowed to borrow that amount of debt. Now it might or might not have lasted the fiscal year, depending on some of the issues Tory raised about how fast money goes out, how fast taxes go. So there are design issues there in implementation, and then of course there's what happened. Another is something that um, was used once or twice, which is you say to the administration, you may um, increase the amount of borrowing, increase the debt limit, subject to a vote of disapproval. Now that's still sort of an after the fact in that he usually has to be within a certain range to do that. We mentioned some some sort of spin-off ideas from that, which are, you know, you could have it done like at the as he submits his budget authority to do this or something. But again, that you could, you know, Congress would at least be able to act. But again, it's not as directly tied to individual decisions. Um, you could do what I call the British version, which is delegate to the treasury, you know, the authority um, to borrow such sums as are necessary um, to implement the, the laws duly enacted by Congress and the president. You would then combine that with some reporting requirements to the Congress. So treasury had to tell them what they were doing. And that would link, I think, to be effective in terms of controls, it would link with the other things we have called for a lot in our fiscal health reports um, is some sort of plan. I mean, nobody thinks you're going to balance the budget in 10 years. And, you know, well, I suppose you could, but <laughs> it'd be a big recession too. It's that, that, you know, what's your path look like? And do you want to use a debt to GDP ratio? Do you want to use a delta a change path? And with that, as part of your package of managing, you also put in something that, that, that changes how the debt limit is dealt with. And, and obviously in terms of least disruption to the financial market, the broader delegation, you know, because it would, it would mean, but then you would, I think, wanna combine that with a plan. Uh, there are, there is also the suspension, which has been used now. And it's interesting that, that for the treasury market, the suspension 
is preferable to a fixed dollar amount because mm -hmm. what they told us, or at least they told us, and we observe, is then they know when they have to start looking carefully at what's going to happen. Whereas if you have a fixed dollar limit, it's almost like a small version of the X date, right? Right, right, right. right. You're still projecting yeah. revenues and 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 expenditures on a daily and, basis. And what we found in, in terms of, as I told you, what we found in turn, and the reason I think it's important to do something, um, apart from the fact that it doesn't control debt at all, is that, as I said, what we found as is that you find suddenly places not holding treasuries or refusing to take them as collateral. I mean, really? Or taking them as collateral with what we call a haircut. And and so any of these ideas, um, there's only one other country in the world, one other developed country in the world that has a nominal dollar debt limit, and it's Denmark. And it is set extremely high. We are not, they are not going to hit, you know, they did the equivalent, I guess they did a version of making their control someplace else. And oh, by the way, we'll get this out of the way by raising it to a you know a gazillion dollars or whatever the kroner is. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, we were just, what we did with some of these, and Bob will remember is, um, we had a group of um, people who play in the budget world and the debt world and experts on a sort of kind of web-based panel. It, it's not generalized, but just to bounce ideas off uh, of these. And they're not, um, as I said, I could spend, you could spend an hour playing with the permutations of all of these. Uh, and I, you know, right now I'm not, you know, we included the one about letting the administration suggest because that was going on at the time and we were discussing how if you wanted to continue it would work. Um, suspension, you wanna be sure that, that you've given Treasury some wiggle room on how much cash it can hold at the end of the suspension period um, so that you're not disrupting the market as they get there. Mm -hmm. But I think really what you want is, you know, you wanna think about, okay, you wanna, you wanna use debt as a control as you do. You want to somehow think about bringing the debt to GDP ratio, at least to the point where it's not growing. <laughs> at a minimum, stop, as they say, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Um, think about that and don't make it harder by every, by periodically coming up against the, oh my God, we can't borrow to finance our, our debt. No, because anything you could do at the time in spending and revenues would be blunt, sharp, and not very effective. Well, uh, Sue, I, again, I want to thank the uh, you and the Government Accountability Office and the Controller General, Gene Tadaro, for focusing attention on this issue anyway and being so clear in the reports. And I would say that for folks that are interested in reading more about this, um, you know, you can find the reports on gao.gov. And, you know, there are, there are overviews and there are details, uh, you know, you can look at, at it to your heart's content. And, and I, I really would urge people to do that because I think there's a lot of confusion about the debt limit, what it is, how it works. And I think GAO's work has been uh, very good and, and very nonpartisan and analytical in, uh, in answering those questions. Um, so I want to thank Sue Irving and uh, Tori Gorman for being the guests on Facing the Future this week. And thanks to you for tuning in. This is Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.